This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Do I get to do a crazy intro like Chris Cash? Would you like to do a crazy intro like Chris Cash? Go ahead. I don't know. You put me on the spot now. Go ahead. We're on. We're recording. Welcome, everyone, to the Full Blast Podcast with your host, Jeff Fader, and your guest, me, Skull and Spade. <laughs> and we are have a new show. That's it. Brett, is it Brett McAfee or Brett? How do you pronounce your last name correctly? Well, the way that we have always pronounced it is McAfee, like okay. the antivirus software that okay. everybody knows about. Crazy, whatever his name is, McAfee. But okay. traditionally, McAfee, McAfee. There's a ton of clan, like Scottish clan stuff way back in the day of, of how it was pronounced. How, do your, how does your family pronounce it? McAfee. Okay. Are you any relationship to that wacko? I kind of wish I was oh. for the sake of the money, but no, we have well, no. For the, for the sake of the podcast, because when I asked that for Chris Cash, who's related to Johnny Cash, he went right into, yes, I am related to Johnny Cash. So yeah, how I was crazy kind of hoping, is that? I was kind of hoping that you were going to be like, oh, yeah, he's my second cousin. <laughs> he's down and, you know, avoiding the police. Now, just to get your story, our story straight. The guy, his last name was McAfee. And when I was a kid and there was, we started to use computers. There started to be, I guess probably around the 90s, I started to notice that they were doing this antivirus software. And McAfee, I don't remember his first name, he did an antivirus software. And it was, it was, um, it was an antivirus software. And you just use it. And this dude made a ton of money because he was making this antivirus software. And um, all of a sudden, um, you know, you know, you, it was just part of the lexicon. It's almost like Xerox. Like McAfee was like the Xerox of antivirus software. Yes. And then he went crazy. And then he he started to have like this, I don't know if he had like a. I mean, obviously, I'm speculating, but that was like a weird brothel or something going on now. No, he South had like America. a harem of women that he did all kinds of nonsense with and two and it got out <laughs> and he became an enemy of the state right i think so he, he i mean he, he was fled on the, the united run. states yeah he fled the united states and then he started fleeing and then he, there was some sort of strange and obviously i don't know and this is you know don't call me if you're a lawyer but i'm under the impression there there he was like potentially like a, a suspect in a murder case it's a <laughs> it's a so. weird thing if you if you have if you have a company that services computers and millions of people are using it and your generations of people are using it and you're making millions of money, millions of dollars of money, would you just be so corrupted that you would, and that's funny, software, corrupted. <laughs> if you would be, would you be that corrupted in life? I mean, I just feel like some of these guys, they make so much money. Why don't you just fuck away off? I don't know, but I feel like it has something to do with the, the nerds that were writing code and software back in the day. Like you have to imagine what kind of person or what kind of personality uh, would be created in this, you know, dungeon of a room where you're writing code and software and then you sell off your intellectual property, make millions of dollars because of a long running contract you have with windows and you get to spend the rest of your life basically doing whatever the hell you want. Like what kind of person does it take to even do that in the first place? Yeah, but he's still collecting the checks. Yeah. So it's like when you're collecting like millions and millions of dollars, 
does your desire to be like a normal person in society just fade away? Is it is it like as you make more money and you're just like, hey, let's get a new car and hey, this car isn't good enough. Let's get a real good car. And you know what? I think I need some guns in my life. And now this house isn't going to happen. We need a bigger house. And obviously I can't cook for myself because the house is too big. I need to cook. You just kind of like level up, level up, level up. And then to the point where you just morals just decline. Hey, listen, why do I need one wife when I can have 10? And why do I have to have a con- agreement? Can I just buy these people? Well, yeah, I think, very- at a, I think at a certain point when you're that successful, there are, you know, different types of people, obviously, but some people just reality starts to bend or skew because none of what is a typical reality to most people adheres to you anymore. You don't have to worry about paying bills or or owing money to anybody because you make so much that it doesn't even matter. Well, when you get that kind of money, you have people cutting the checks for you. There you go. I don't, but I don't think Brett McAfee is that kind of person. (laughs) Brett McAfee is a fascinating individual. He is a maker. He's a YouTuber. I don't know if that's an insult or not. I I I'm, I I have to tread tread lightly with everybody when I call him a YouTuber. But I'm saying it with peace and love and respect. And you have you have a great YouTube channel and you're a great maker and you're just a very interesting character. And I really I'm very happy that you're here. Well, I appreciate that, Jeff. It has been a weird life that's led up to this point. It's full of. Like- Full of lots of different jobs and attempts at careers and, you know, investing time and money and energy into into people or jobs or what have you. Just trying to get the most out of it that I can. And then I found making to be the thing that I genuinely want to spend the rest of my life doing. Very good. Well, let's just get back to it because in the beginning you grew up in a state you don't, we don't, I don't know many people from. You're from Kansas, right? Yes. Not Kansas City, Missouri. That no. some people, you know, that that happened. You know, the president of the United States, and I don't really get political, but yes. he did congratulate the state of Kansas for the win of the Kansas City Chiefs. But they're yeah. from Missouri, so not to be confused with Missouri. You are from Kansas. Where in Kansas are you from? Kansas City. So you're a Royals. <laughs> so wait a second. So so, so uh, there is Kansas City, Kansas, and Kansas City, Missouri. They are split by the river. And I grew up, like, my home address, my parents' address, is Kansas City, Kansas. Huh. Yeah. Now, I've always wanted to know why barbecue came to Kansas City. Kansas. Kansas? Or it was Missouri? I'm fucking it up. Uh, Where did the barbecue go? I'd say that it was all 18th and Vine, uh, like, Jazz District is where a lot of that stuff started. Because you know how jazz, there's a huge jazz uh, uprising and influence on Kansas City, Missouri. Kansas City, Missouri. Yes. Okay. So, so the barbecue the went to barbecue. Kansas City, Missouri. Yes. And so like, I'm even as though dumb Kansas as, is... I'm as dumb as the president. <laughs> well, even though Kansas still adheres to being a good barbecue state, and like, you know, these Midwest uh, states, but most of Kansas barbecue is based on... Kansas or Kansas, Kansas City, Missouri is based on sauce. Like, we're a very sauce-heavy right. barbecue, so... It, doesn't really matter with the like the vinegar, the, right. the smoke or the wood or all that stuff. We're very sauce. Heavy. Very sauce. Yes. So you growing up in Kansas, you did have a lot of barbecue. Oh yeah. I mean it was one of my best friends growing up that I went to school with, they owned a barbecue restaurant and that's just where I ate. It is still in my mind, it is still one of the best barbecue places I've ever eaten. 
And the owners, the family, were Croatian, and he made better barbecue than anybody else I knew. That doesn't surprise me. I think that a lot of immigrants come to this country, do a better job at a lot of cooking. There was, I'll tell you a funny story. When I was growing up, well, when I, my wife and I moved to Manhattan, there was a Chinese family that opened up a Mexican place. There's a famous, there's a famous uh, Cuban Chinese restaurant on the Upper West Side, but this is like a small hole in the wall. Chinese food, Chinese family-owned Mexican joint. It was, and you know they spelled everything wrong, which made it even better because it was mm-hmm. like it was, it was the diet. They call them diet queers, not daiquiris. <laughs> and then melt, melted cheese was mife cheese. Oh. So Hillary and I would, my wife and I would always call it. Well, we just we would go there because we wanted all the mife cheese. And I always was surprised because it definitely had a Chinese food flavor. So it doesn't surprise me at all when you say it was a Croatian barbecue place. Yes. Well, so, the, you know, when I moved to New York, which right. we can get to that and kind of do yeah. backstory stuff if you want. But when I moved to New York, my really good friend growing up from uh, – I met him in college. Uh, he cooks amazing barbecue. Like He's right. a great grill master. But we were always trying to look for good barbecue in New York City. Something that at least made us feel like Kansas barbecue. Not good. One place I found in the last year that I was there because I was uh, really into rock climbing. And there's right. a rock climbing gym in Long Island City. Okay. I know what you're talking and about. And John Brown Barbecue is a oh. Kansas City barbecue barbecue joint. I walked in and there were Chiefs and Royals stuff all over the wall. They served Boulevard, which is the microbrew. And... The barbecue tasted like home. It now was you're, the best place. Now, to to our few Howard Stern listeners, that's also the 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 bar that Richard Christie goes to to watch the Chiefs games and the the Chiefs and and uh, the Royals. That's a yes. that's a very famous Kansas City bar, isn't it? Yes, because okay. I think it's such a small place. It's obviously very barbecue heavy, right. but it, there was most a few. Go there, there was a few places in Long Island City that did barbecue. Um, I remember when I was back in you know that late nineties, but yeah, a barbecue in New York has always been tough. It always yeah. was a little tough. And every so time I you... see somebody say "best barbecue in New yeah. York," I disagree. Well, I grew up with when New York barbecue for me was Tony Roma's. My dad would take me to Tony Roma's, oh, and we would get the boiled baby back ribs, and I love them. You know, so I didn't have any. I didn't have any. Uh, I didn't have any. Uh, I didn't have any anything to compare it to. Yeah. So for me, that gray boiled barbecue ribs <laughs> tasted, I mean, tasted amazing. When we go to Tony Roma's, I was happy. And uh, it was uh, one of those things where, you know, I didn't know any better. And then when I got into all these, my friends are the barbecue guys. And I get involved with barbecue guys. And it's just like, oh, you got to taste the smoke ring. And I'm just like, hey, look at all this bark. I'm like, what are you talking about? Where's the boiled water? Where's the gray, where's the gray, where's the gray barbecue ribs that I remember as a kid? So There you go. Fine. So did you, so do you have any brothers or sisters? I do. I have, I am, I am the youngest of three. I have an older brother who's three years older than me and then a sister who's six years older than me. My parents did the three year swing on the children. That's a, that's a strong move. Yeah. That's And and girl first too. So they, you know. Well, you don't have a choice in that situation. Yeah. I I had, I had two moms growing up. That's. That's a tough one. I had a my dad had my dad had two daughters, so I had two half sisters, and I was surrounded by these kind of and they were much older than me. My 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 sisters, the the youngest one was like seventeen years older than me, sixteen years older than me. So I was getting beaten up and and, and but it wasn't even beaten up. It was more like mothered. I was overly mothered yes. and I resented it. 
Yeah. <laughs> That's really what it was. I'm like, I don't have to hear mom say this and then you try and say it again. Like, I already heard it once. Thank you, sister. Wow. So, so, so you have, so they went three years, three years, and three years? Three years yeah. for a kid after the first kid, then another three years? Yeah. That's and we grew up, you know, I, I know I told you that I, Kansas City is the home address, but right. the thing is, Kansas City's um, border is pretty wide relative to the city. So I grew up in a town of, I think it was population 1,200 or 1,300 mm. when I was growing up. It's completely surrounded by farmland. Like, I definitely grew up in an area where the city was close enough. We'd do a weekend drive with the family when we were young, but... You know, most of my friends either ran farms or they they were family-owned farms that they grew up on. I, you know, bailed hay a couple of seasons and and would do the farm life thing. Huh. Um, but started to kind of stray away from that whole. Game. Well, wait a second. What did your parents do for a living? My dad has been a lawyer since forever. Smart. Um, and my mom is a teacher. She she huh. started substitute teaching when she was pretty young and then got into it full-time and then she just retired a year or two ago so they were lifers at their jobs my dad still works um but you know being raised by a lawyer who told you all the things that you could do and get arrested for and then the mom who teaches at my school district so can't fuck around there Oops, sorry. <laughs> Can't screw around there. Uh, you think I don't... You, what, you don't think I curse? What's the matter with you? Do, don't you I don't know, know how this podcast works. I feel like... Just be yourself. Relax. Just relax. Okay. See, see, here's the biggest problem. The biggest problem is is we. I don't like to have the video on because I feel it makes me guarded. It makes me self-conscious. Oh. And, and, but... but, but um, but Brett wanted me wanted the video on because he wanted to see me. He wanted to be able to judge my reactions. And, and, and honestly, it's it's a mistake. It's a mistake on your part. You're a because mistake. it's a mistake because I feel like a lot of podcasts where you see each other, you you end up focusing on yourself or somebody else, or you're just you're distract. I'm distracted. Mm. I'm distracted. But the funny part is, I've been noticing uh, since actually since coronavirus hit. And I've been extra uh, um, antisocial, extra antisocial, that I ha- am having a harder and harder time interacting with people in real life. Ooh. And I tell you why, because this past week I did these two Instagram things with some people in Peekskill. One was this Peekskill mm-hmm. coffee house. And I got so many messages about how miserable I looked or sour I looked. <laughs> and it's beca- a lot of it's because. One of the reasons why is they asked me, we, did, we raised all this money for the, the school and everything yet. And they, they asked me to come down for this raffle. We raised some money, 4,800 bucks. It's not, it's, it's great. And I mean, it wasn't all, you know, coffee. It was raffles and you know, donation, whatever. So they wanted me to come down for the raffle. And I was like, no, no problem. But at the time, I'm heat treating 50 knives. So there's only, a, there's a certain amount of time you have you know, you can't just heat treating knives is one of those things where, especially if you're doing a batch of them, you have to kind of time your day out because, you know, you can't do, you have to be able to harden your knife, but you also have to draw it back and temper it to at least once. So you can't just kind of leave, you know, there's, it, you gotta have to be very, uh, so I was, you know, very scheduling my time and they said, oh, just come in at 11 you'll be fine. And 
And I showed up at 11 and um, they weren't that, you know, the, the manager was so sweet and she was there and I was talking to her. I said, oh, are we ready to go? And she was all waiting for this, this young man who I've known for, since forever. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, no problem. I'll get something to eat. I got a sandwich and I got a coffee and I'm waiting. I'm looking at the clock and now it's like, you know, I'm 10 minutes early anyway. So it's five minutes, 10 minutes. I've eaten my sandwich. I'm just like, I got to get out of here. I got to, you know, I got to, I am on the schedule. Mm-hmm. And then 10 minutes 20 minutes and 30 minutes he's like 40 minutes late for as far as i mean he's like 35 minutes late in real life in my mind in my crazy mind he's 40 minutes late so as soon as he shows up i was so fucking sour it was like i really had no i couldn't even and you have the mask on so my eyes are always i have big rings under my eyes so i Mm -hmm. always look like i'm exhausted anyway right so i was i was um i was I looked so miserable on this video and and then and then at the end when we get the raffle out he thanked the woman who won the raffle and I stopped him and I said don't you think she should say you're what we should we should say you're welcome she should be thanking us and he just looked at me and I said well I mean you know she won and you know you picked her her ticket fairly was but I mean you don't thank her she should. We were saying you're welcome, and it got just like so Larry oh, David. Man. It was just but how awkward is that? Because then at that dude, point, I made it, and then and then and then they posted it, and I get a message from my wife. She's like, "What the fuck's the matter with you?" I'm like, <laughs> "You know what the fuck's the matter with me? You, everybody knows what the fuck." But then I did another thing this weekend with my friends. I do this um, kind of tour around. On Saturdays, I stop working in the shop on Saturdays, and I'm going to get back to you. But this is the reason why I don't like the, the fucking camera. And at the end of this, I might be turning it off. So we do this. I take off Saturdays now. I love it. My daughter and my wife and I, especially in the summertime, we kind of time out the farmer's market. A friend of mine opened a bakery and there's a coffee shop. So we do coffee shop, get a pile of stuff at the farmer's market, walk down to the bakery, then hook around all in one loop, hit the liquor store, and then we walk back up. It's a great little trip. So this friend of ours does this tourist thing in Peekskill, really kind of like a nice, they're called the Peekskill Exurbanists. They're great. It's a wonderful couple. And of course, you know, I just got up, you know, I came out, I ran from the shop. I just got this piece of equipment and I got all this stuff and I'm all jazzed up and I got all this million things to do. And we're walking around and they, all of a sudden the camera's on and it's like, and I got to be on it and I can't do it. And, mm. and I was sour there too. And I had the mask on. So I looked as though I looked like I was sour. And then my body language and now and i don't want to fucking do the shucking and the jiving all the time like this is a thing where now you have to like so jeff come on let's talk about the farm i'm like i understand listen we're gonna the farmer's market and hopefully it's good but i talk like that and then i look sour yeah so and i got another message saying what's the matter with you why are you so sour i'm like i don't i think now i came to the conclusion that i think because i think that i'm diva i was talking to chris cash this morning i said i think that he says oh if, if you don't know chris cash He's the first person to tell you when something's wrong. Like yes. if something's wrong or you've done something, there's no more honest, unnes- unnecessarily honest person than Chris Cash. So he calls me up and he goes, what's going on with you and your town? I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, how come you're so miserable there? Or something like that along those lines. And now I am convinced that I'm devolving my socialness. My human social contact is devolving. So I'm looking at you right now and I'm thinking to myself, I can't, I don't want to look at myself. So that's the reason why I like to turn it off. And with that said, I'm just going to turn off my camera. Oh my God. And let's get back to, let's get back to, let's get back to Brett. So that's the reason why I had to go into that just to get you understanding. I have real problems and the problems seem to be getting worse. 
I'm yeah. so much better. Like I see, I feel freed like this. I can't see you. I see nothing. I like to look at you, but I do like to. <laughs> I like that you're not seeing what I'm unrolling my eyes or making a face or blah blah blah. But that's my problem because I have some. I'm getting worse. I'm getting worse. Ah, so okay. let's let. Well, see, true. you know, here here's my go ahead. Uh, here's my argument to that. Go ahead. So in the situation of a this conversation that we're having, or if you call right. it an interview, what have you, I still equate it to things like movies, right? So right. if you're acting, it's reacting. Yeah. I need something to react with. It is sure. specifically okay. the reason I have a goofy plastic couple of skulls is because somebody early on suggested that I needed to be more in front of the camera, maybe talk a little bit more, or maybe explain a little bit more why I'm working on a project. I didn't feel comfortable doing that because I don't like staring at an inanimate object, a.k.a. Right. the camera. So I, out of nowhere, just decided I was going to put this plastic skull in a video and talk to it, and then it became a thing that's now been a running gig for two years on my channel. But it gives me something to react to, and I can do facial expressions you know, to this completely lifeless object but it ends up creating a conversation well so here's that's the why i make the argument but i appreciate Fine. why you're doing it i, I appreciate listen i'm giving it. you honesty i also you don't know that i picked my nose that's so true. this is and and you know so there's i it's it's it, it it makes me less guarded in how i speak and i've and i'm and I, but but for a podcast it's good but for for life, it's not good. So gotcha. it's like it's 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 becoming it's it's something that I'm gonna have to deal with. So totally speaking good. of speaking of of which of your of your YouTube's YouTube uh, sh channels, you identify as. All right, wait, let's just. All right, we're gonna go into this right, right then, and we're gonna figure out where you went and stuff like that. So <laughs> you you kind of identify with like this whole pirate theme, and I've and I've listened to your I've listened to interviews that you've been with. I know that Skull and Spades thirteen has a little bit of pirate stuff, and you got a you have a beautiful tattoo of a ship on your arm, and you you the pirate thing is stems from your years and multiple watchings of the Princess Bride. Basically, basically. I mean, it's it's that and the Goonies. It's what I've equated yeah, the this Goonies. to. Like I was a child of, you know, I was born in the mid eighties, but I had these older siblings, and huh. specifically my brother was enough older where I was watching a lot of the movies that he was interested in. And because we were kind of bored kids in a small town, something like the Goonies where these young kids are getting on this adventure, finding the pirate ship and uh, the princess bride was Carrie Elwes back in his prime, yeah. prime acting days, you know, just looking like a svelte fit young man, yeah. but he was blonde and he was a pirate. Yeah. And I didn't feel like there was a lot of blonde actors that had these parts you know when i'm looking as a as a young child and going you project yourself outwards like i want to be sure. that guy right? right so i ended up really enjoying the hell out of those two movies specifically and watching them tons and tons as a child and it just i don't know what stuck i know there was a, a long stint of my life where i didn't really either talk about it or embrace that i was i was kind of into this little subculture uh but, you know, the older I got, the less I started to give a shit about people's opinions yeah. or what, what they thought about me. Sure. And then it was a full embracing of just, look, I'm into this stuff. Either deal with it or move on. I definitely have caught enough stuff on my YouTube channel about, uh, I think there was a comment where some guy just goes, 
you know, the pirate thing is so played out ever since the Johnny Depp stuff. You guys should stop praising this pirate stuff. It's so dumb. Like, well, all right, man. Well, you listen, I hope you're having a great day. There's there's a lot. Of, that's a whole different ballgame. But what's interesting to me about those two movies is they're both about kids from, because actually when Goonies came out, it was supposed to be they were in Poughkeepsie. They were yes. in Poughkeepsie, New York. And that's where, I mean, I grew up very, very close to there. So there was a lot of like, you know, both those movies was about the the lead character came from like this kind of podunk area and they've kind of went off on an adventure in the world, which is, I'm not saying that he grew up in a podunk area. Don't take that uh, offensively, yeah. <laughs> but there's, but there's this, there's a very, there's a similarity in terms of coming from like a, you know, not a metropolitan place and then kind of going off onto this adventure. Exactly. But you know, it's, it's the escapist you know, association that you make. Cause it yeah, also, you know, 100%. as much as I'm into like video game and nerdy stuff too, all of that, it all spawns from the escapism of it and, and wanting to, you know, live these adventures in your own mind. Pirates have really gotten away with murder in terms of their reputation. Don't you think? <laughs> I mean, you know, it went, I mean, if you really look back into the history of what pirates were, the pirates weren't real. I mean, they were like, you know, murderers and rapists and thieves and like, oh. you know, they were they weren't really. I mean, I you know the interesting part. I mean, you wouldn't. I mean, it's like you wouldn't. You know, twenty years from now, we're not going to be like making movies about the you know the royal the uh, noble mugger. You know, it's <laughs> like it's very there is a there is this interesting thing. But I was thinking about pirates a lot, especially getting ready for you. And I did I did think um, about the fact that you don't hear about one pirate. It's always a crew of pirates, so it's it's always like part of being a team. And when I look at the things that you've done over time, um, and the places you've gone, whether it be working with uh, Jimmy Duresta or now with Ben Ueda, or we're going to get into that fucking movie that you worked on, you're you're part of a crew. And regardless of how they get along, I mean, it's a very, it's almost as if it's almost as if you're you need to you can't be a solo. A solo pirate isn't really a pirate, right? No. Is a solo pirate is just a sailor or a dude? Well, I think he's just, just a mugger or a thief. Point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like you know, right? I mean, so so it is interesting to me that you've kind of not only have you embraced it from like a from like a like a literal standpoint in terms of you know you you do the you guys you now have you, apparently you have a very long list of pirate songs that every single one of them I've never heard before but I, I'm glad you're sticking with it and then there's there's I, I'm just fascinated by I think that there's a lot of more subconscious stuff that's very similar I mean I'm not saying that you're like a yeah. robber well, or a mugger well no or no no you're you're on the right track I mean there's if, I'm always if you on go, the right track Brad, yeah, don't, you are. don't forget there you go if and you're not a liar I've heard that before so if you go into some more depth and, and a little bit more um, maybe like non-bias or at least right. the stuff that we've seen in movies or pop culture. Um, piracy was extremely democratic w- within the crew, right? Like per ship, uh, there was a lot of voting and a lot of electing of positions on board. And even though they were you know pillaging and doing all of these things, internally within the crew, it was very self-sufficient and and um democratic is the easiest word yeah regimented like a captain was nothing without his crew right Right. that's how you get into the individual nature of things like if you're by yourself it doesn't really matter so even like i started a 
Patreon a couple of years ago, and I, for the entire uh, existence of the Patreon thing, they're all my crew. Like I made patches, yeah. like embroidered patches for a certain you know support <laughs> level, and it's a crew patch. It That's says right. crew on the bottom of it, and you know the T-shirts that I came out with. It's this crew thing, and and to me, it is more about embracing like the adventure side of things you know just going out on the open seas having adventures like try not to focus on the terrible shit there have been people (laughs) in every facet of every subculture or culture in the world that are bad eggs yeah we happen to hear about a lot of that stuff because they were going up against the monarchy and you know whatever that turned into but at the end of the day the way that i looked at it is like Man, how nice is it that you get to lead this crew of people that like follow you, but also think you're great, and you, you know, find them treasure and take them on adventures because you're doing this thing. So even the the Disney movies that came out with Johnny Depp and stuff, silly or not, whatever your perspective on them, I still think they showed off a lot of the just the adventurous nature yeah. of these people, and it was all this ragtag crew of people that didn't have another place to exist. So this is really at the core when you get down to like the heartfelt stuff. My idea of this crew that that is supporting me and, and following me is they're people that didn't have an outlet or they're people that right. didn't really know how to be a part of something bigger. And I want to welcome that into being like, look, I have a very um, like laser focused direction in what I want to do with my life and my own success and, and my own adventures that I want to you know, strive for or set out to do, but man, I'd love it if you joined in and I, I will make it better. I will, I will try my hardest to make your life either more enjoyable or make you feel included or, or make you feel like you're part of something bigger. If, if you want to join along, I was going to say that the acceptance seems like that's like a big part of being in this crew, you know, acceptance and, you know, you might maybe you know, don't get along well, but you know, you're all in this, you know, you're on the same voyage for, to this direction yeah there's a line that comes out of one of the disney movies where it's part of the ship part of the crew like if you are here you are part of the crew like if you show up same thing as like general old school work dynamic you know if you if you come ready to work and you're part of this shop then you are part of our work crew like you're part of the team if you show up and you do a bad job at work or you're not good at your job you don't become part of the bigger team. Like no one really cares. You get, you know, pushed away or no one really cares, you know, in the service industry, if you're a bad server, no one cares to split tips. No one will give you the good tables. Like none of that stuff. Yeah. But when you're on a, when you're on a working on a boat, it's not like you're going to go home and come commute back to work. You know, these guys were like, these guys were like stuck on that. They were, they were like, they couldn't really, there wasn't a lot of like, Let's call Johnny. He's running late. Is it, where, where is he? Or he called in today. Yeah. I mean, if you're on a boat, you're you're there regardless. True, true, true. I I do like this. Uh, it's a conversation I've had with some people. You know, everyone goes through their own, you know, tough times and everything. And and I know I'm speaking about the Patreon thing specifically, but the support that I've gotten from people has really helped me get to where I am like I I really don't think I would have been able to get as far as I have without the support of these people and you know sometimes they go through tough stuff people have lost their jobs in in the corona deal and they'll send me messages and saying I'm sorry I gotta you know I gotta pull my support I'm really tightening 
the belt right now. Of course. I, I just have to take in. And it's always I always have the same conversation with them, which is like absolutely take care of your own priorities, and the ship will be here when you get back. You know, drop you off at port. All of these little analogies or, or metaphors for things, but I want these people to know that like you you're part of the crew, kind of forever because you joined in, you put your work in, you put your time in, whatever you know metaphor or analogy you want yes. to use. But I want people to know that. You know, if you've taken the time to show up and you consider yourself part of this team, you, you're kind of that indefinitely, unless you prove otherwise. And then I will absolutely make you, you know, walk the plank and like screw off. You, <laughs> okay. You never come okay. Back. All right. All right. So yeah. what what got you? What was the you left Kentucky to do what? Kentucky. Kentu- yeah, I mean, I, Kentucky. I mean, Kansas, Kansas <laughs> is the case. Sorry about that. No, so, you're you're, so you so you went through high school and what set what got you out of Kansas? Uh, so growing up, I, I think I hit maybe my, my mid teens and I had spent a lot of my years as, as a young lad drawing and sketching and doodling and stuff. I just, I loved drawing. I'd sit in my parents' basement and watch movies and try and draw the things that I was seeing. I ended up having a really great art teacher in high school, but being that we were such a small school, like the curriculum just wasn't there to, to push very hard. So he did an amazing job. His name was Mr. Langseth, and he had probably the, the coolest voice as a teacher. He, you know, hey, Brett, what do you want to work on today? That's a good Coolest point. art teacher in the world. He was fantastic. But I was probably one of, I don't know, two or three kids in a school of, I think, uh, ninth grade through, through twelfth grade. I was probably one of three kids that actually gave crap about art in any capacity so he's teaching all these students and i happen to be this kind of i'd say slightly larger than mid-sized fish in a very small pond in terms of like creative kids that probably needed to break out and not go into agriculture which is what the majority of the, the school ended up doing i went to college at the state school so i went to ku university of kansas you're welcome for creating basketball although i'm not into sports ball that much but we, you know, well, we I thank had you. this. I thank you. I thank you for creating basketball. <laughs> there you go. go ahead. Um, we had, uh, there was an art program there, an art and design program at this school. And even though it wasn't an art school, um, it had a really good reputation. And because it was in state, I got lower tuition. I got some scholarships and stuff that I applied for through my art and my really generic portfolio graduating high school. Um, and I went through this art program, and I was immediately smashed with people that were way more talented than me. I wasn't that that slightly bigger fish anymore. It was like, oh my god, I have no idea what I'm doing. Right. You know, these people are so much better than me, and they're the same age. But I got exposed to artists that I had never heard of before, or you know, different medium that I'd never worked in before because I didn't realize you could paint with coffee, you know, or or use coffee grounds and do this thing, or clay metalwork i didn't really get into metalwork very much because it was a very jewelry centric uh curriculum if you wanted to go into metals so i stuck with um my first year was just illustration because i thought that was what i could make money doing as being a commercial illustrator uh i but found out through the process that the graphic design program shared 75% of its curriculum with the illustration program. So I decided I was going to dual major 
So instead of having a cakewalk of a college experience, I had, you know, 24 credits a, a semester and was just trying to be creative full time. Wow. Um, that's, a, that's a huge commitment to double major. Yeah. It's and it was two similar, two similar things. Yeah. It, you know, I, I look back at it now and I'm like, wow, that was a lot of work. I didn't get to enjoy my college time. But, but at that point in time, I had a, I had a high school girlfriend that went to the same college as me. We were, we dated through most of college. So I was, you know, I didn't need to go out and party. Right. Cause I had a, I had a lady that I was gotcha. keen on and you grow up in a small town. You have all your, your relationships and your parents around you. Everybody met in high school. Everybody got married. Everyone popped out a few kids and got a house. I was just following that path because I thought this is what you did. And that was my experience growing up. So it, it helped a little bit. You know, I was able to focus on school and, and try and do this dual major thing. Um, because I just didn't have a lot else going on. Now, that went to absolute garbage fire heap junior year, end of junior year. We had some, we had some uh, relationship differences in terms of what we thought things Obviously, were going to turn out it, to. That, that, it never works. You can't, no. you can't go into college with, number one, I was going to say I'm envious of you. Because I wish, looking back, that I had buckled down and done more i wanted to do and i wanted to have an art major minor and an art history minor i really wanted to get an art history and now that i think about it i wish i'd gone to do on a few other things but i had too good of a time but the one thing was we had friends who in started college freshman year and they had their high school girlfriends and we're all like they're it's just not gonna just just stop it right you're you're it's it's, it's a mistake it's a, it's a huge mistake only because you change God, Your freedom yeah. changes you. So, all right, yes. so it busted up in, in junior year. Yeah. So, I mean, this is all, I feel like I'm going to be jumping back and forth. Fine. I'm just kind of giving context. But, yeah. uh, you know, when I, was, when I was going through high school and even uh, middle school, I also got accepted into, the, yeah, this is a really roundabout way of saying how I got to where I was. But, so I got accepted into a, like the smart kids program, which it was in, me, in high school. In middle school, oh, in middle like school. seventh grade, okay. I got a I got a meeting with the principal and the lady that taught the smart kid class, Miss right. Rigquist. Not your mother. Oh my God, no! I, okay, thank right. God it wasn't my mother. But this this woman, Miss Rigquist, who I would say is there you go. She was probably one of the biggest influences um, as far as educators go when I was growing up. But um, I I got into the smart kids class and it, right. I, I was with seven other kids who were the brainiacs you know you grow up with these kids you're like wow that guy's gonna be like a nuclear physicist or something and then me i i don't really know you know initially i was like i don't know what i'm doing in here these are all the smart kids everyone recognizes them as the smart kids what am i doing in here go through high school i'm still in the program by the time i got to college because of the uh the classwork that we had been doing in the smart kids class uh i tested out of uh science was not a necessity for me in college math i had over tested so i was like three classes ahead in the in the college curriculum necessities so this is why uh, i was able to do the dual major thing is i had actually covered like 75% of the credits that i needed that otherwise is, that is the best yeah if you could so, cough up if you could cough up all those requirements early 
then you can focus on the stuff that you want to do. That's the way it, to go. Exactly. And you say, you know, you wish you had looked into art history minor because I had openings and I still had to fill some of these just generic uh, humanities credits or, or I can't remember what the term for, for kind of the open. You just have to fill this as accredited class. I took uh, theater design because I thought maybe I could go into movies or character design with my illustration degree. I could, I could maybe go into designing characters right. for movies because I've always loved movies. And uh, so I went into theater design, which was, you know, set design, some set building. It was kind of where I started to cut my teeth a little bit on uh, just generic building and construction. Right. Um, got an art history minor because I became fascinated by other cultures and the, the art history wrapped around. So much of it is based on religion, too, where yeah. I grew up Catholic and that's all I knew for years. And then I went to art school and almost immediately became that kid that's like, I'm going to question everything right. about the religion I grew up with. Got out of that, got out of the relationship, you know, focused on school, gained 40 pounds with my freedom. Because uh, I was you, a beanpole so when the, I graduated. You're ahead of the game. A little bit. Uh, if, I think if, you I, had, if you had just broken up with that girl in freshman year, you would have been really ahead of the game. Yeah, probably. But I also probably would have put on the weight a lot quicker Fine. and then been a complete That's, piece of crap. The, this is the time to put on weight. You're, you're, don't worry about that. You got a yeah. freshman 15, don't worry about it. You gained a little weight in, co- in, in, in college, no problem. Yeah, it's funny. There's, there's the old pictures of that time in my life where I'm just, I'm just thick. Just look like a thick boy. Um, so anyway, let's let's like cruise on past that. I graduated with this dual major thing, and I had a focus in. Uh, I started to get into graphic design a little bit more on the animation side because I realized that illustration and graphic des- design could they kind of join together when you get into motion graphics yes. and animation, so moving image stuff, right. which fed into the movie aspect of things. My thesis uh, was a short film I attempted to create with a bunch of animations and graphics over this live-action stuff. That didn't pan out very well because it turns out if you ask a bunch of your friends to do a short film but you can't pay them and they're also not good at adhering to a schedule... Uh, it ain't gonna work out. <laughs> so, hey, with all this focus in, in kind of the moving image stuff, uh, my brother at the time uh, was actually working for a local news station out in Las Vegas. So he calls me up after I graduate, and you know we're we're relatively close growing up, but we had kind of lost touch since I got to college, and he's been working as an adult. And he calls me and says, we need editors, like intern editors. Huh. But you could move to Vegas and you'll work with me. Like, Done. Sounds- so three months later, I was in Las Vegas. And started out doing this editing gig as a 20, what, 21, 22-year-old in Las Vegas being told to go and film red carpet events with celebrities and go schmooze with a bunch of people and do interviews and then edit these interviews for the the online media source that we were going to so do. So had you had any video experience or you just learned it all on the job? Kind of on the job, but it was definitely uh, back when technology started to shift over from film and like mini DV tapes yeah. to digital. Like we had P2 cards, which were these gigantic solid state drives that went into the camera and they cost like a thousand dollars a piece it was ridiculous but we were owned 
our company, our media company, was owned by a billionaire in Las Vegas, Greenspun Media. If you look up Brian Greenspun, he's part of the Greenspun billionaire family that Green Valley, in outside of Las Vegas, Green Valley is named after the Greenspuns. Huh. So, like, we were good, and... All you had to do was flash a badge that you worked for Greenspun, and you could almost get in anywhere. So the the shit that I got into in Las Vegas, being way too young, no responsibilities other than try and pay my bills and do my job. But, you know, shooting red carpet events or these club events that would start at 2 o'clock in the morning, and then I had to turn around a video the next day would mean staying up all night, drinking and schmoozing, then go and try and edit a video before 8 o'clock to get it out and everything. And just, that place chewed me up and spit me out pretty hard. I had a great time, but I look back and, and there were some decisions that were made that should have been. <laughs> well, listen, I mean, obviously, the, it's interesting because that type of job, I mean, edit, the, I think that people, I, obviously, people are not aware of what goes into making video. And they don't understand different camera angles and shots and what's everyone knows the expression is like, oh, let's get some B-roll. But they don't understand what you need in order to make a very crisp uh, video. Mm -hmm. So it fascinates me for the fact that you had to, you had to, this is the thing about video that I never get. And that's the reason why I'll never do YouTube videos. I have had a few, I've been involved in some, but it's just like, you understand, you have to learn how to, you have to learn that you need a, it's almost like a mathematical equation for shots. Like you need a certain amount of shots in order to, and I would imagine for like, a, um, you know, for what you're doing on the red carpet, you know exactly how many shots you need of each. Yes. And we were told by our production manager, you know, once he came on board, you may shoot 45 minutes of, uh, of a story, but when it's for TV, it's all about this quick turnaround, you know, and media was starting to move so fast. This was right at the inception of when online media really started to become a thing. And that's my immediate boss was one of the first people to start pushing for that and selling ads before the videos. It didn't work out well because no one could figure out how that dynamic worked. Right. And so the company ended up going under. But um our production manager came in and was like, you guys are shooting too much footage. Like, I'm going to ask you for videos quick. I want, for every one minute long this video is going to be, no more than 10 minutes of on-card footage. So we had to get really tight with our shooting, which is why now that fed into so much about how I produce my videos now. Like, I shoot real tight. I edit very, very tight because it makes a huge difference in the post-production if you shoot tight and you don't have all these long bits of footage and stuff well, but that's do you know what it's like do you know what it's like jeff to be 21 years old a little chubby and there's a video of this online oh man and i did uh one video i was never on screen talent before this for like a year and then uh robin leach mr lifestyles of the rich and sure. famous that we used to work with canceled on me one night I was supposed to go and film with him, and he was going to interview the Black Eyed Peas. This was on New Year's on the Strip, and he cancels on me. So I have a message. I've since lost it, but I had a message on my phone for years of Robin Leach going, Brett, it's Robin. Um, I'm going to cancel because I've already got you know somebody here that's going to shoot it for me. Whatever. It was this beautiful message from Robin Leach, but he canceled on me. And I had to produce a video. So I called my boss, and he said, get something out of it. 
So I went man on the street. You know, these old Jay Leno man on the streets and yeah. stuff like that. I just took the camera down to the strip and just started interviewing people. But I have forever been kind of like stone-faced or a little grumpy. And so I just started asking people ridiculous questions. And then I edited down this this video that ended up making my whole office crack up because it was drunk people and then me reacting to them and people just doing outlandish stuff on camera, you know, saying and what did your boss say? Things. He thought it was hilarious. But did he, so he was goes, he happy? Yeah, because okay. because we got the video and he thought it was fun. It was a different take on it. And, and he didn't expect me to be on camera because at that point I was just like the quiet intern guy. So here's what I'm getting at with the imagine you're 21 years old. You do this thing. Boss sees it, likes it, and then he goes, all right, uh, next week is the porn convention that takes place down at the Sands Convention Center. Uh, We're going to line you up with one of the actresses, and you're going to go hang out with her for the day and do an interview. So we need a five-minute piece on the fake orgasm contest that she's going to be hosting, a little bit of back and forth, and some B-roll. You got that? (laughs) Oh, my God. I was like... So what did you I say? I have no idea what to do. I mean, I had to do it because it was my job. But I mean, there were you nervous? It. Absolutely. I mean, I grew up in, you Kansas. know, Nowheresville, Kansas, and yeah. the this exposure that was suddenly happening. Where like, you're going to go do this boy. thing. Poor little Catholic yeah, exactly. boy gets thrown into this lust convention. Yes, and so I walked in, and it's just creep fest for the most part. You know, like. This is where I learned because I ended up covering the thing every year that I worked there after oh this one because God. they liked the video. So I did three years at this convention where I actually developed a couple of relationships with these super friendly people. It's a job to them. Like everything else, like everybody else that has a job, they're good business people. They're great at selling themselves. They just happen to do dirty stuff on camera. Every single one of them was always just so nice. And just so welcoming and, and catering to do the interviews and stuff like that. But that first interview, I had to go talk to a girl who, if I didn't know who she was, was the girl next door. It turns out there was a gigantic poster behind her from the scene that she was up for an award for that year, which involved her and more than one other male human. <laughs> I like how you're trying to, trying to PG it up. Lit, you we're gonna get into it i mean if it's good porn it's porn yes so she i mean she was doing a gangbang scene and she was up for an award and it was her and seven dudes and oh there was a God. huge poster of it and i couldn't even film it because like we had to take it down because i was like i can't blur this thing out you know it was ridiculous so i'm standing there trying to keep a straight face with her the whole time and then i don't even find out until afterwards that uh, I'm doing the interview with her and I'm editing it and I have my brother watch it back and I go, dude, or he goes, Hey man, I think she was totally trying to pick up on you. Like, do you, do you hear this one line? And she says specifically, I go, okay, so everybody's got a fantasy. What's your fantasy? And this is a girl who almost for the entire interview has maintained eye contact with the camera because I think that's kind of what they get used to doing is I would imagine. screwing the camera. Right. And She's a total sweetheart the whole time, but this one question, she answers it with me like, yeah, I always thought it would be fun to like sneak into a back room at one of these conventions, you know, and where you might get caught, but you kind of do it with somebody and like non-industry people probably better and all this stuff. And then she's just eyes go off the camera and she's just sizing me up. I didn't even pick up on it because I, I'm, I'm too awkward and young no, and innocent. Innocent. This is innocent pre pirate Brett. Yes. 
So this is not. This is not. It, the pirate Brett would have like, you know. Come yeah, on, let's, I let's, may have done it for the experience for sure. There's, there's. <laughs> you know, pornography is such a strange thing. It it's really such a is. strange. It's so strange because I always feel like I can't. I can't tell if these people feel coerced or not. You know, uh, I, I, you hear that, you hear that some of them are just like you know. This is I've always liked sex, and this is something that I've always wanted to do. But I just. I, there's just so many of them doing it, and there yeah. it has to be a very saturated market. It and is, I just and the lifespan, ima- the lifespan, like the working lifespan of most of these, especially the women, is very short. I like was, you are, a, you are a flash in the pan, literally, and then we're gonna kick you out because you're you're too old or you're not what we're looking for. Like and, I just, it just like I just remember, I remember. My daughter was born. My daughter was maybe under a year old. And I got invited to a bachelor party. And it was like, I'm like, all right, 31, whatever, go to a bachelor party. You know, I'm, I'm, I've been doing like diapers and like no sleep for so long. Yeah. And my wife was just like, oh, this will be fun. Why don't you go to, this ba- go to this bachelor party? I walk into the room and then there's already these guys. Watch, you know, I walk into the room. I don't know any of these guys. And they're all standing around with their hands in their pockets with pornography going on. I mean, it's just a porn movie going on. And it just seemed, I've always felt like, you know, that I've always felt like when dudes watching porn together, God bless you, but that is gay. Yeah, I just, there's something about, which is fine, but it's like, it it is just strange. It, there's always this very strange thing. I just, I don't want to be horned up next to other people, especially dudes like there's a Dude, it's, strange it's, carnal that weird carnality with other men is just like i'm just this isn't for me you yeah know? well it's it's voyeurism mixed with exhibitionism and all of these other you know quirky quirky things that come out of just the the human condition everybody's wired a bit different and some people really get off on some stuff it's a, that it's a you're not into th- it's a personal thing but then afterwards we you're gonna have a few drinks and then we go to a strip joint in New York. God, a I classic. Strip club. A, a, well, me neither. But it was a classic, you know, Forty Second Street strip joint. And the the women were like, you could just tell that this. I just I like it. I could look at these people, and they were, you know, they were just not that. They weren't into it, and and <laughs> it just seemed like it seemed like I just feel like I just wanted to talk to them and say I just don't feel like you want to be here. Yeah, and it, it it always seems to me with sex work, and and I, I you know I talk to people who are or sex workers, and you know now we we're looking at you know how sex workers are treated and stuff like that, and there is this more of a you know feminist concept in terms of how they're treated, and it's not as whatever, it's not as you know some people are not as exploited as others, but I can't help think that especially in porn, there's a giant degree of besides the titillation. There is like a there's a little bit of coercion and it and I, I think it's coercion of just people dumb people. Like I don't think it's I don't necessarily think I think it's like some of them are really dumb. I mean, you're not wrong. You're gonna find that in every aspect of the world. But so yeah, I think I think it? what happens is the 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 dumb ones, as you're saying, are. But then when you, when you say dumb, well, you feel bad for them because no, it's no, like, no, it's it's like. At a certain point, the the coercion isn't even the thing. It's like they're up for anything, right? So they kind of get taken advantage of. I wouldn't even say that they're they're See, forced that's, into that's, it. That's coercion just, too. Okay, I mean, it's maybe it's mind control. I heard you talking about mind control. Well, I mean, you get you as you. I mean, as you do anything in life, and you get things are more normalized, and you're seeing people do things that other people are doing, and then it's being accepted. You slowly become comfortable 
with doing things that you might not yeah. have done before. And I just like, you know, look, I'm not, I'm not pretending like I'm some fucking Puritan, but at the same time, it's just like, you can't help but think that some of these people are not making the best life decisions. Yes, I would agree with that. And I, I talked to a handful of ex-actors who, who definitely have some thoughts and feelings about their time in the industry. Uh, and, I mean, hell, Ron Jeremy, we did an interview with Ron Jeremy. He didn't want to talk about anything from his work life. He played the harmonica for me and Robin Leach. He's, about to, go to, time he's about to go to jail for a long time. Yeah. There's, yeah, there, yeah. It's is not, this is, you know, you know, you, you hear, you know, on Howard Stern, they had all these strippers on and you used to always ask them, you know, who took advantage of you as a young child and why are you doing this? And it always is, it was always very interesting because in the beginning, you just think he just wants to see some naked women. But then all of a sudden it's just like, you start to, he starts to talk to these people and they can tell you, can tell. I would just imagine that when you're in this convention, number one, you're seeing dudes who are just like, you know, the kind of guys who are like floor lickers who who lurk lurk in some weird yeah. these weird rooms that yeah. you're just like or they're on the bus and you're like I just I'm sure he smells bad and I don't want to be anywhere near that guy right but well, then well you have to you have to put it together that you take yourself out of this out of the uh, the really like um, forward facing aspect of these conventions if a guy is waiting in line behind twenty or thirty other guys to go meet an actress the unspoken relationship that they have is he's jerked, jerked off, off to, to you a lot yeah. thank you that's fucking nuts dude that is i mean it's just so so at these conventions are there obviously they're selling like dv at the time they're probably selling dvds and dildos right yep yep God all damn. kinds of toys and stuff i mean uh it was aurora snow who i spent um uh, that first interview with and one of her friends whose name is evie uh, took me over to show me her prosthetic that is now available in stores and how realistic it felt, and then took right. my hand and shoved it inside of this fake vagina. Oh, <laughs> like, that's so weird. She goes, isn't it super real? And I'm like, I oh <laughs> so So wait a second. So did you feel like, I mean, I would imagine the first time you're feeling a little bit on the violated side. What was her name again? <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to dig her up. Who, Aurora? Aurora. The main actress or yeah. Evie Delatoso was the second one. Evie. All right. I, I'm not going to. I'm going to be able to. Aurora. I'm not going to look this up online. I'm not Dude, she's way. Enough. She's. She, I think she's uh, She's passed. I think she got out of the gig, but she did well for a few years and she's a total sweetheart. Do you have, do you, have you made any connections that you still know these people? Um, yeah, obviously, we, you're working there. You're probably not creating relationships. No, the next couple of years for the convention, like we stayed in touch or, or she recognized me a couple of times. And then a couple of the smaller actors and actresses, like we, we knew of each other uh, from the e interviews I'd done previously. But it's so, I mean, you got to imagine it's a convention. It's like a knife convention. You're going to meet a thousand people. You might remember a couple of them that you have some good experiences with, but it's not like your best friends overnight. So, if I, if I was a young woman who was an adult actress, and I had, a, and I probably, most likely, did not want to go to one of these conventions, I would imagine that you'd have to steal yourself up for dealing with these people. I just it's a show because you know that you know that that's the thing. It's like you know, you meet someone at the Blade Show, maybe they follow you on Instagram. That's one thing, but. You meet someone and you shake their hand and you know that they've been masturbating to you. That's that can't that can't that has to fuck with you. That has yeah. to fuck with you. Yeah. 
Did you, and, did, and, and, and meeting one person like that is a lot different than going, I've spent the last three days shaking hands and taking photos with these oh people. God, can you imagine the fucking genital warts that have been passed around just by the handshakes? There's some pretty sketchy looking folks oh at those conventions. God. Now, with, what is the weirdest thing? Number one, did you see people having sex there? Um, I got invited to the after party. That definitely happened at the after party. Oh my God. And I think that was my work? first. I'm pretty sure that was my first exposure to something like that, where you walk in and they just go. This was a typical thing. I was I was almost gonna kind of get into this for some later work that I did in Vegas, but it started to become a very regular thing that like whatever the professional thing is during the day, because it's Vegas, it is a city of debauchery. So it didn't matter what story I was covering. If there was an after party, there was usually something going on, and it wasn't the porn convention. It was actually the tattoo convention where I got invited to. The after party, and the very first thing I saw when I walked in the door was like Tony Montana level mountain of cocaine. And the guy was just like, Well, yeah, help yourself to some party favors. There's women in the other room if you want to go talk to anybody. And there's a private room if you need to kind of get away. Private time. Young Kansas Brett is getting thrown into the fucking, into the crux, into into the crucible. This is, God damn it. I can't believe you escaped with your life. Well, I met a lot of good people. I, I still maintain friendships with a lot of the people that I worked with and, and got friendly with out there. Um, especially now that I live only three hours away from Vegas, we've kind of like rekindled that and we, we want to go hang out again. But um, I, I started covering food. Uh, my boss found out that like they just kind of needed to give me work more work in right. between these goofy right. you know silly things that I was covering, and they found out that I really liked to cook. It was something that I got into after college, and so they started you know realizing that we needed a you know a food blogger or like an interviewer to go and talk about all the restaurants and because there is really amazing food in Vegas, so yeah. I started getting sent around to these you know, five-star restaurants or, or these places that I would never even be able to look at their menu right. for the pricing. And uh, I started seeing a girl that I actually met on one of these shoots that was a... She was going through culinary school at the time, so it just kind of bolstered everything that I, I had this very food-heavy lifestyle and uh, got a... Re- bunch of really good connections through that got to meet some really amazing people ended up becoming really friendly with like carrie simon who rest his soul passed away uh after i left vegas he was an amazing human and a brilliant chef but had some health problems that ended up catching up with him i met guy fieri was my very first food shoot he was an absolute dickhead it just he's worst. he's the worst <laughs> I'm not gonna and, shit on. I'm not gonna shit on him, but. I'm well, look, it was my personal experience. I never, um, I never I'm like sure to put it on anybody well, these else. But are, these people, I, they're all. You know, I understand. Yeah, and it's experience based. Like I, I don't even know how I got the interview to begin with. Being this small newspaper that no one knew about, it was enough for him to take the time. So I got to give him credit that it was it was fine, but. And then I started meeting more of these celebrities or these celebrity chefs, you know, depending on what the shoot was, having a grand old time meeting all these people. And it actually, it opened me up a lot. You know, these experiences that were so off-putting, like when I was doing the porn convention, started to become 
normalized, like you were saying a minute right. ago, where these are experiences that I'm now ex- having so often where it starts to become the norm. Like it doesn't affect me anymore to walk into the club and see people doing whatever the hell in the corner. Like that's we're in Vegas. And I feel like, I feel like you've, I feel like you've been tainted. I feel like this young, innocent boy from Kansas is tainted by these like, you know, cocaine pornographic Guy Fieri parties. Maybe, but you got to understand that from a very young age and my mom is even, you know, I'm, pretty close with my parents and and we're we talk pretty openly with each other my mom has been like yeah you have been the black sheep forever like i don't look you're the like black my sheep? immediate family yeah i'm taller than the rest of my family right. i have blonde hair and blue eyes they all have dark hair dark eyes freckles they're all shorter than me like i never looked like anybody in my family i also dove into art as yeah. a career or these creative passions and so she always knew I was going to go just be different. And I was always kind of challenging the status quo and being kind of like, for lack of a better term, I was kind of a shithead going through coll- or going through high school because I just started getting fed up with the popular crowd and how things were run in small town. And this popular guy, you can't talk bad at the popular guy because he'll make you unpopular. Like, fine, I don't care. I'm so- going to college. So back to back to the, the the Las Vegas. How did you end up? And this is something that I I think it's incredible that you were able to learn on the job to do these uh, video. You didn't go to school for video. You didn't do it in high school. You didn't do it in college. And you got the training to do shoot video and editing video. You got asked to be on a crazy reality show as a film as a camera guy and i found out about this as a very under the radar hard to find yes you were the tell us about this goddamn reality show that you were filming on right so we got my media company fired 75 percent of the people that worked there it was in 2000 and I can't remember which year, but journalism across the United States took a huge hit. Like a bunch of companies fired people. So we were all looking for jobs. And I ended up uh, looking up a Craigslist ad for these people that were uh, working a media convention. I was like, okay, I work in media. You know, they're just looking for some locals to hawk their product or whatever. Right. I ended up meeting a guy uh, who also answered the Craigslist ad. And he was a young producer. Like he really wanted to get into making TV shows. So he was trying to make connections while he was there. His name was John. And we started rapping about this idea he had that he was kind of in the final throes of putting together, which was he wanted to take 12 people, six casts, six crew, fly everybody over to Berlin, Germany, World Cup site 2006, but it was 2010 at this point. So we're going to start at World Cup site 2006 and we're going to grab some cars, cheap cars from a junkyard and we are going to drive to South Africa, which you can do and take the ferry over and we're going to end up at the World Cup. We're going to try and watch a couple matches in South Africa during the World Cup. And I didn't have a job. He offered me money to do it and was paying for me to get like my passport renewed and all these things and it seemed pretty professional he had actually done the trip a couple years prior with his brother he had a production company lined up that was going to help with the money side of things he had investors and 
I threw caution to the wind and I remember calling my parents and go, I'm going to do this thing, but I need you guys to just be aware that I'm doing this. And they both, you know, were like, Oh my God, it sounds horrible. They were probably like, thank God he's not doing any more porn conventions. Yeah. This is so much better. He's actually going to do something worthwhile. He's going to do traveling instead of, you know, dildo stalls and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, it, it took a couple of months of prep, but, um, at the beginning of the summer, we, you know, I had met most of the people. I knew the two guys that were Vegas locals, as well as myself, and we met in Berlin, and then and then hung out and started rapping with everybody. I started filming, um, and I was camera A at that point. Like we had a director, a camera A, a camera B, a producer, and an editor. So the plan was to take these junk cars and and then what two or three people per car. Yeah. And then they're going to draw and the oh, two camera guys in the back, two in the front. Yep. And you're going to drive all through Europe and then down. And the, the whole idea was when I saw the original uh the webisode the beginning, it was very very along the lines of it, the first, you know, reality show really was the real world, the MTV real world where they had these, you know, these kind of cool yes. kids, yeah. you know, like, you know, different styles and stuff like that. And they were all kind of thrust together. Everyone right. seemed very, all the people seemed very, you know, it was like a Benetton ad, except, you know, it was a little douchier. Yeah, it was what happens when people stop being tourists and yeah. start getting real. And that's kind of what it felt like. So there was, the. I watched the first episode and all I could think of was, God damn it. Brett is going to have to be in the car with these people. I just don't understand how you're going to boot because they were insufferable. They, yeah. it, the, the, the vibe that I got, and I wonder about all the different contestants, I get the feeling that they were being discovered. This was going to be their moment of discovery for fame. You could feel yep. it. Yep. Everybody had this level of pretension, save Lucy. Uh, if anybody goes and looks up this thing. What was, uh, the, name called, the, what was the name of it? It's called Wreck. Trek, W R E C K, Trek. Wreck we were going to call it World Cup Trek, but, uh, you know, copyright. Oh, so it's called Wreck Trek. And as far as I know, it's on Amazon. And that's where Chris Cash, I believe, watched it. Um, Lucy is this Australian cast member. She was, she was great. She was very real, but didn't have any pretentious bones about her. The rest of the cast was was pretty tough to deal with, and also the crew was ragtag, just like the cast members were. And you know, this guy sees himself as very, very professional, and he doesn't touch the cameras because that's not his job; that is beneath him. And then the director had a vision and was very creatively minded, and how the lighting needed to be. Like this is a reality show; we don't need to be doing all this. But. What ended up happening is, you know, people started to get kind of friendly. You know, we're going to be hanging out for the next four months trying to do this thing. Let's try and make a go at it and and try and be friendly while also understanding that shit's going to get real sometimes. Um, It took... So we were in Berlin for two weeks getting B-roll shots, pickups for interviews and things like that. And then we got these shitty cars, got them tuned up and running, and then took off. And we didn't make it eight hours out of Germany before the Renault, which is a French car, uh, the girl who was driving it, who said that she knew how to drive stick, did not shift gears and blew the engine. 
and we were on a relatively tight schedule to to like film but then also get some experience in each city but she that knew we that was film. supposed to happen that was all of a sudden the, the you, you have a tight schedule but the director's like probably like great drama yes because then so everyone's gonna be pissed off because all of a sudden she fucked the car up exactly so it, we didn't make it far at all and then we had to spend an overnight thing getting the car fixed and i'm not gonna go through all four months of this stuff but effectively that set the tone for the rest of the trip it, it was like this is gonna be tough and then you have but to you're, trust but you're all, all these... crew on a ship this is your pirate ship moment you have yeah, to work together I didn't, because... get to be, I didn't get to be the captain on no. that i just signed up as a... you're a crewmate yeah Fuck. and so yeah like this turns into an absolute shitstorm the long the longer it goes on we made it through france relatively unscathed we had a great time in barcelona like we actually got to go out to a bar and and meet some locals and everybody was interested in what we were doing right because these these all the cast members think they're going to be the next big thing exactly so they're they're good looking people i'm I'm, I'm you know i'm gonna be the one that makes it to the end i'm gonna do the best because the whole setup for this was like we're gonna be driving through back country absolute desolate africa like, you have to understand that the minute we hit Morocco is, like, the last of it until we hit South Africa. Because there's just not a lot going on on the West Coast So what was Africa. the, what was the, what were the, was it a, was it a game show? Was there, like, a rule? Or do you all yeah. just try to make it? Yeah, the plan was, can we make it on a all shoestring them, budget? So, so th- yeah, so from the beginning it was like, what is the actual dollar amount that it would take to have this adventure versus doing a tourist version of it? And it was you know a tenth of the price or something to to go do this specific style of thing and the adventure was part of it there's no, no game plan other than starting point stopping point there's one thing that drove me fucking bananas which was there was the beginning interviews and there was this one dude who's wearing like a kind of he looked like a kind of a drawn out uh bradley cooper and he had this like he had this like Middle Eastern scarf on, as if he's like you know he was been like a Sherpa or something, like some sort of like you know, whatever. And he just said, "I just want to prove that anybody can do this, and you just can get a crummy car." And he goes, "He goes, you can just take a car from your neighbor, or you can take your shitty car, or your." And he said, "You could just take your neighbor's car and drive from Germany to to Africa." And it's just like number one. I'm sure you just can't take your neighbor's car. That was just, come on, man. And then the next thing is, it's like, who's got the time and the inclination and and the and the and the financial stability that they could take four months off to drive across Africa, you know, in a fucking stolen car? I mean, it's yeah. like, it's, I mean, I call it pipe dreams or whatever. It was yeah. so obnoxious that I was just it, like, God it's damn very it. pretentious. It's it's. It was. I think was, I like the idea of the, the of this this work adventure I was about to have, and just like, wow, can I really pull this off? And that'd be cool to have a TV show under my belt. But good lord, I didn't know what I was. This is like into. four months of being in a car with a flat tire, waiting for the tow truck to come. Basically, so I mean, we hit. Right, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say. So you get down to Africa, and yeah, now it's hit, no longer. And I can imagine the mindset as you're going through Berlin, and you're going through. You know, all this beautiful towns in in France, and it's very like, you know, you can get yourself some things to eat, and it's very classic. And you're in Barcelona, a young town, all these young people, and everything like that. You get into Morocco, and then it's like sand and disaster area, right? Yeah, I mean, it was. uh, I don't think a lot of people know this, and I was definitely unaware of it. But like, 
Marrakesh is one thing. It's it's touristy. It's been around for years. Tangiers, same deal. You know, it's it's been a hub since like classic movies, right? Casablanca, right? All that kind of stuff. Um, we hit a town. When you start to go southwest, we hit a town called Tantan, which is part of Morocco, and that was like anybody that's a Star Wars fan, or or if you can picture this in your head, it's like most Eisley, right? Where Obi Wan and Luke go. Yeah. Everything seems like it's made out of clay, and there's, it's just dirt and sand, and people are in long clothing, so that the sand doesn't beat you down oh. when the wind blows up and everything. And uh, we're like, wow, we're starting to get into desolation. Like, There's just not a lot going on. These towns are sparse, and there's not a lot of people in them. We constantly needed car work just because the roads were so bad, because they're not paved. They're just dirt roads that have been driven on for... You know, whatever kind of logistics company is toting, you know, fruit or vegetable X to location. And now you Z. have to be worried about your water. You have to make sure you have plenty of water and right. gas. Yeah. Our car got broken into mm-hmm. that night at the hostel, and they stole one of our cast members' pills, which we didn't know she was on a bunch of medication for some psychological issues that oh, she had going on. no. So... That set us up to go, well, what are we going to do? Oh, my God. I can just think you're saying to yourself, God damn, I want to be back in that porn awards. I want to be back in that porno convention. This is terrible. I'll take the pile of cocaine. Give this woman her goddamn drugs back. Yeah, it was was really bad. I I felt bad because, like, Susan at that point, she's been a trooper. Like, everyone kind of gave her crap because she was – everyone started this joke that she was the crazy cat lady because she was a bit – she was a bit weird and a bit quirky. But – how she crazy was, did she get when she had her drugs stolen? It was pretty bad. Like the next week or two was a lot of like she can't drive because she can't focus and and like her oh brain's God. going all crazy. So it was full on like withdrawal and symptomatic nonsense of just like oh we couldn't we God. couldn't figure out how to control these situations. And did anyone want to just that, leave? Like, did anyone want to just say I've so had enough? This is where it started. This is where things really got nutty. So, start out with 12 people. Yeah. We hit Burkina Faso. Uh, one of the cast members that actually spent a lot of time in Burkina Faso is like a, an expat. And he had had it. Like, that was it for him. The, the trip, everything was taking too long. They weren't getting to experience any of their downtime or stop in any of these places. It was because we were always behind because the cars were going bad. Or like, you know, the medication situation, the car getting broken into, trying to fix... This, that, and the other thing, it was putting us constantly behind. So we were playing catch up and catch up and catch up. So this guy, Jonathan, just said, I'm done. I know this town. I'll figure out how to get back home, but I can spend a little bit of time here. I'm out. That night, two of the crew members also decided they were out because they were at least comfortable knowing that the cast member could help them get out of that city. So they were going to bow out then. That's so now a we were crazy nine. decision. Yes. Now we were nine. So- was the produ- What did the producer say? John, who I would say is the producer, and this other guy, Jonathan. They were the two Vegasites that kind of made the pairing that, that I joined in with. Right. Um, Jonathan was invested. Like, he had put money forward. John, the guy that you're talking about with the yeah. ascot or whatever, <laughs> like, he was going to push forward. There was no stopping. He was like, yeah. I'm going to finish the show. I have to deliver it, whatever. Yeah. Jonathan was pretty on board for a little bit while longer, but... We started to run into real issues where, like, uh, 
we'd, we'd gotten the first Renault fixed in Germany. Turns out it fully blew up. And we had to replace it. Like the, the pistons and, and like the engine block actually cracked and stuff. So we had to get this other car. Well, it blew up again outside of Burkina Faso. And like that, that was it. We could not get another car. You can't get paperwork. Stuff starts to get really illegal and everything like that. You got to understand that we're also, from start to finish, all these visas and all the passport stamping that has to happen at every out and in border. Most of these countries are corrupt. They take bribes. It is a very standardized thing that you bribe, especially if you are not local. They'll just tell you straight up, like, you don't have the right paperwork. And you're like, yeah, we do. We have a government document from Morocco that says we can come into your country. And they go, no. And so you offer them six cartons of cigarettes and a couple of T-shirts, and then they let you go. And that was the, that was the standard the minute we hit Africa, and there's a there's a running joke with a lot of people that it's TIA. TIA is this is Africa. That's the that's like the Vegas what happens here stays here yeah, thing. Yeah. It's just this understood that like the rules do not apply and like cultural or societal stuff that you're used to doesn't matter. But it must doesn't matter been, here. It must have been making for good content. It was amazing. I mean, it was there was drama every day that you didn't have to create right so it right. was very real everything that we did the p- biggest problem is like once people started to drop off i had to pick up their slack so i went from being like camera a to the director was one of the guys that left in burkina faso as well as the the director another... decided to get leave yeah he goes i'm out this isn't what the i want dir- well then, well, then who picks up to be the director I did. Oh I started my. taking notes in a book because I had been filming almost everybody and I had like the most TV experience. I was keeping track of storylines in a notebook and, and like, okay, Lucy's dealing with this right now or John needs to go and do oh this. Let's my. make sure that we're filming this kind of thing. So because I had this record, I picked up the slack for it. But we were also, everything was planned out for how many cars we had, how much food we had, who's who's doing camera work at what time. So we just kept losing people. And we hit, um, it was Congo. So Congo and DRC are are horrid countries in in terms of like their military and the government and stuff. It's it's just a ton of corruption. It has nothing to do with like the local population. The people are fantastic. They were so nice. And we got taken care of so many times under complete duress. Like we had no idea how to get out of whatever situation that we were in. And somebody local would absolutely rescue us. And there were nights of just like, I, I, I guess this is where I die. Or I guess this is where everything ends. Like, I'm, I don't know how I'm going to get back home. There's no possible way we were getting out of this situation. Now, Somebody t- hit a bridge with a car, destroyed one of our cars because they started to kind of doze off. And then hit a bridge embankment, which if they had continued going, it was a 40-foot drop into the water. And it destroyed that car, and we pushed it over to the side of the road, like rubbed the VIN numbers off of it, and then a local guy, this was like 2 o'clock in the morning, a local guy's walking down this dirt road and says, is everybody okay? This is in like broken French and English. Is everybody okay? We're like, yeah, but like we can't take the car with us. And he goes, I'll get my friends and we'll take it. Is that okay? And we gave him like all the paperwork that we had, and we're just like, just take it, dude. We can't do anything with it. So... 
when everyone starts to leave, are the producers saying to you, Brett, if you pick up the slack, we'll give you more money? Yes. So they're like trying to, at this point, they're like, we need to recoup this thing. We got two important people have left, or three people have left. We're going to, we're going to do whatever it takes to make sure that nobody else leaves and we're going to like throw their money at them. Because now all of a sudden they're probably thinking to themselves, we're not going to pay those people. The people that we. Yeah, those people definitely didn't get paid because they voided their contract by leaving, right? So there was technically a little bit. So now you're down a car, you're down some dudes. I saw one clip I found was in Mauritania that looked like you were in. Oh, the minefield? You were in a minefield. Yes. It was an active. It was an active. War zone because it's called, I mean, the locals call it no man's land, but it's, it's technically Western Sahara. If you look at it on a map, it's just kind of this obscure dotted line border where it's not really a country, but it was a, it was a back and forth border war for so long that it's now become like too dangerous for anybody to, I don't know, live on or, or create a livable space. And we had to pay a local guy who knows the path to get through this minefield, which is also kind of a tourist trap because they, they would pull cars. We found this out, but they would pull decrepit cars out there so that it would kind of scare the people. You have to pay a guide. You have to pay a guide or else that could be your car. Strong move. Yeah. So it was like, yeah, that's a good, but it was real. Like we looked up some stuff after the fact and we're like, Oh yeah, that is an active place of just terrible garbage. If you were to tell me that there's a, a minefield ahead of you ahead of me i'd believe it i don't need right. i don't need I, I i don't need like you know the props to make sure that I exploded cars so how you got through this minefield in mauritania was that the scariest point no uh God. i got arrested this is a fucking this is a fucking pirate story okay you got arrested yeah so we were in congo and everything kind of get it just it was going all over the place. Like I can't even remember at that point if we lost more cars or more cast members. Like I can't remember. Um, we needed to get the ferry over the Congo River, which separates Brazzaville from Kinshasa, and it is known that those two cities are just they're really tough. But there's really this one ferry crossing that is short enough that they will ferry cars across, and so we had three cars. We needed to get the ferry across. It took a week of the same thing. Like, you don't have the right paperwork. You have to pay us this much or, like, put this much in my pocket and we'll let you through. We ended up kind of befriending some of the people on the docks, these dock workers and stuff, and and it was really cool. I actually exchanged a T-shirt when I left with one of the guys who looked like he was chiseled out of stone, and somehow I became friends with him, and we traded T-shirts. He probably would have been good at the porn awards. (laughs) Yeah. We got to Brazzaville, or sorry, we got to Kinshasa and realized very, very quickly that like we were not wanted there and it is not a good place to be. There was at that time a lot of uh, government corruption and government takeover, so it was really causing some problems with like the local military and, and just outsiders in general didn't really feel safe, but there was a UN building there and we were staying at a hostel really close to it. So it was like, yeah, okay, we'll try and play it by ear. Um, I took the camera out the second day that we were there with one of the cast members and we were just going to kind of do a walk and talk, catch up on everything. And I'm filming 
what I think is just generic background stuff, and I suddenly hear just this deep, booming voice speaking in a language I don't understand, just screaming. And I look up from the camera, and this guy is running at me with an AK, and is running at me. And I was like, oh my god. So I, I totally, I had no idea what to do. I froze up. And he gets really, really close to me, and is, you know, pointing the gun at me, and then points it at the camera. And so I go, oh... Oh, that's right. Like there are certain places where I am absolutely not allowed to to uh, film. So it's it's totally on me at that point. Like this guy wasn't even the wrong. Um, I I would have needed the right paperwork to say that I can film in front of these buildings. It just so happened that this completely unmarked building that was in the background is a it's a government building. It's a, it's a uh, what you call it an as- not assembly. Gover- What's what it's government, a government building. It's a government building, right? Oh, you mean um, an embassy? Embassy, Jesus, okay. yeah, that's Fine. the word. So it was an embassy, but it oh, was so completely he, on Mars. So they thought know. that you were like spying on the embassy, yes. so you could like, give intel to another whatever to. Okay. Yeah. So. God damn it! I put the camera down. Tony, who's my cast member, is walking there with me, trying to reason with the guy and be like, "No, no, no, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay." You know, like we'll <laughs> put the cameras okay. down. It's so sorry. That's some white privilege right there. It's okay. Yeah, but it's okay. They speak. It, you know, most of the countries that we were traveling through spoke French, which right. I didn't. I didn't know a lot of French, but you, you're kind of forced to pick it up along the way. So yeah. I was trying to explain a few of the words and a few of the phrases that I had picked up to explain what we were doing. But he was speaking Lingalan, which is the local dialect, and like it was not happening. This guy was super not happy. So I get sat down. He directs me over to sit down on the curb. Zip tie. Ugh situation happens i got oh. the camera sitting next to me and a gun pointed at me and I, like i have no idea what to do i keep asking tony i'm like tony i don't know what to do like we, like do we just break the camera in front of the guy i don't care but it was a ten thousand dollar camera and, and we had all this footage that hadn't been recorded so my professional mind is trying to go back and forth tony doesn't know what to do because we're just trying to reason with the guy, so Tony beelines it for oh, he runs. one of the little bodega stand things that exist in these towns and just starts buying up food and cigarettes and everything that he possibly can <laughs> just bring back over to this guy. Because we know that it works sometimes, but it, this dude wasn't having it. No. Yeah, so, a couple, couple hot dogs aren't going to make it that Yeah, get, exactly. Undo so, those zip ties. Exactly. Oh. So we... Uh, we're sitting there. It's got to be like 10 minutes. And this truck, this UN truck pulls up like out of nowhere. And the guy gets out of the car and in perfect English with this amazing African accent is just like, what's happening here? And I go, oh, my God. Yes. OK. I was filming and, and I spit my story out to this guy. He starts talking to the gentleman. He lowers his gun, which is a great step. Yeah, that's in an right awesome, direction that's for an me. awesome step. Uh, I think it was an hour and a half it took before they got me out, like unrestrained. But where were the people to... from your crew? Where were where were all the the, the producers and everything? They didn't care. They, no one was happy, and like oh we couldn't get a hold of God. them. Like we said, we didn't have cell phones. Cell phones didn't work. None of us had this service. You know, this was before. What a shit house. Yeah, and it it took. I had to delete two days of footage, Ugh. which sucks because we lost like some amazing footage from my camera. Um, he threatened to break the memory stick in front of me because he thought that would really solidify like right. needing to show that it was deleted. We still paid him 
we still gave him all the stuff that we bought from the little bodega place. <laughs> and the guy from the UN, who was 100% justified in saying this, was, this man did his job. Right. You should not have been filming here. Right. Have the correct paperwork if you want to do this kind of thing, but do not be upset with this man. Right. And then he, the guy shook my hand. The dude that was pointing the gun at me shook my hand with this just stone face of just like, Get we're the, sorted. Get the fuck out. But get out of here. Yeah, like we're good, but oh. fuck off, kid. So at so this that point, was, that was you, terrifying. Do you, do you, at this point, you're just like, it's enough with this trip. It's enough with this African trip. Pretty much. I mean, that was the Lynch three quarters of the weight mark. Um, we lost, I think, one more cast member. I think Lucy left, the Australian actually left, which she lost her passport on the way back that turned into an absolute nightmare for her dude she was put in jail in johannesburg for two days like don't even want to know what that was like um so we we could not get into angola angola if you look it up as a country has been pretty rough for the last few years and they just physically there was nothing we could do to get into angola i'm gonna try and smash the rest of this story down because there's, <laughs> there's more stuff I want to talk about more stuff. But, okay, all right. Um, we actually met a local family while we were eating one night. I had been going to this place that they spoke decent enough English, and my French was decent enough to where we made it work, and I was going there almost every day to eat. And we, the World Cup games were being played on, the on like, the one TV in this place, and out of nowhere, I hear, fuck! And I was like, whoa, that was English. I know that was English. Who the hell said that? And I, I find this family who are, I find out later, they are of Indian descent, but they work at the local school, which is a kind of a Montessori school, but it's yeah. an international school because of the UN there. There's a lot of people from different cultures that travel through. They are teachers there. So Indian family, roots are from Canada. They now live in Kinshasa doing teaching. They're a crazy story all in themselves, but they felt so bad for us. And they had been living there for long enough that they had all the connections. They were wealthy enough to where they could kind of pull some strings every now and then. They actually got us on a plane just to get over Angola. And then what about the what about the cars? uh, They disappeared. They (laughs) fell off the they fell off the back of a truck and ended up somewhere. So so so. P.S. That guy that helped us has two of them. Okay, so really so you've ab- you've abandoned the cars, and you're gonna finish this video, and by you're gonna take the plane over Angola, and then what? We hit South Africa, rented a car because there was now so few of us that we could all fit in one car with our very minimal suitcases and stuff like that. We hit Cape Town, and we missed the World Cup by two days. <laughs> that is perfect. Yep. And it, so it, it was this completely somber, like, hey, we did it. This is the like worst. The five of us line. did it. But yeah, nothing. So it turned out to from 12 people to five? I think so. I think that was the ending number, was five. And did they finish the did they finish the series? Yeah, I mean, it's a full show. I can't remember how many episodes, but so it's called it Rick Trek. Yeah, it took I think two years. None of us got paid. I was specifically specifically supposed to get paid. But because I did not, uh, because it wasn't on my contract, it was like a gentleman's agreement that I I helped make it happen. I was still supposed to be compensated for what I spent on that trip. 
just to get through it because our money kind of disappeared as we were going through it because of all the car work and stuff. It was like an IOU situation. Like, I understand we were supposed to pay for this. So, so never you, were got that money back. Mo- you were using your own money? Yep. I was broke when I came back. Oh, I had like no my. money and no job. And they technically owed me what I spent on the trip plus the contract. If you don't mind me asking, any of it. what do they owe you at the end? I think at this point it's like thirteen or fourteen thousand that I didn't get paid. Oh man, fucking wreck trek, dude! It that was... sounds like the worst. I thought working the porn convention would be bad. I don't think there's anything worse than the wreck trek. It, it was. Look, you look at it back now. You know, with kind of rose-colored glasses on, like. Money comes and goes for everybody. I've had to get really comfortable understanding how <laughs> I can have like a really great paying job, and then I can yeah. have nothing. And then I, I've been through like just That's the a- highest of highs and the lowest of lows. This trip, which is even funny to talk to you about now because it was in 2010, but those four months were the most emotionally, physically, you know, work, everything that was involved in that was the most trying time I may have ever experienced and in my life. And you paid for it. And I paid for it. God damn, that's a crazy story. That yeah, is real film, pirate shit. Go film with a camera in the middle of the Sahara when it's 130 degrees outside. Dude. When all the camera wants to do is overheat and you're getting battered with sand and they're like, we really need a couple shots of us pushing the cars. <laughs> I do not know why you fool around with this Disney pirate shit. You did some real pirate shit. Yeah. That's real pirate shit. It's, it's about finding bar. the common ground. Like, to, let me tell you something that you'll know about. That's but bribing, bribing people and trying to like not get killed and dealing with some shady people. God, that was that's real pirate shit. And you were loyal. You were a loyal pirate to that motherfucker. It was a. It was. A, I had to stick it out. Like I made the. I actually had to talk with John, the main guy, one night in the middle of. Uh, I think we were in Yaoundé in Kanu. And I pulled him aside and was like, look, I'm in it. Like, if you're here, I'm in it the rest of the way. I don't Damn. really care. Like, let's, I, I got to know that I can finish this. And we freaking did it. You're going to pay me, right? Yeah, no problem. We're going to get yeah. to Cape Town. And there's going to be a nice check waiting in your P.O. box. Nope. Nothing. Fuck. Came back broke. Had to leave Vegas. Like that. The rest of this is kind of quick and, and cookie cutter as, as far as getting to where I am now. But it was like I came back broke, couldn't find a job, moved back to Kansas, live with my parents, which was a bummer for oh me. Oh, my like, God. The wreck trek. Yeah. I blame the wreck trek for all this. It's pretty rough. And it's funny because, you know, you would think all the sex workers, you get, you got treated better by the scum of 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 Las Vegas than the scum over on this TV thing. Dude, that's why TV and I... It, it, that one puts such a bad taste in my mouth because technically I had been working in TV before that for a few years. This was, like, money and and sneakiness and contracts written in such a way that this doesn't happen or this doesn't matter. That's when I really got a full-spectrum view of it. Ugh. And since then, it's been really hard for me to even look at anything like video. Or, I would imagine uh, like TV. You were totally I, taken advantage of. Yeah, and then you know, I met Jimmy years later, skipping past a bunch of stuff. But you meet Jimmy a few years later and realize like he went through a ton of TV BS back in the day, and that's why he got into YouTube. You know, he realized he wanted to 
kind of be the master of his own content right. and how he built things. And I started to put these things together. It's like, oh, maybe YouTube is like, I want to share my stories. I like telling stories to people visually. But and you have, I like you have building more, stuff. But you have more background to prepare you for YouTube than most people do. A hundred percent. I mean, a lot of people after, learn, but you had that experience already. Yeah. I, I went through, when I moved back to Kansas, I ended up getting a job with my old buddy who was a silkscreen and letterpress shop. Uh, I spent enough time doing that in college where he was willing to let me have a job at his, at his very small company for, you know, pretty minimal money, but it was like, I need a job. And I, I love letterpress. I like running all the old machines. It's cool. We did that for a while. I enjoyed it. It was going back into art making and, and doing all this stuff, but got offered a fabrication job after that, where I was doing design and build for like exhibition halls and, booths for all of these conventions and things kind of full circle to like be on the other side of it now building the things for these convention halls uh and funny enough that company in vegas where i did the craigslist ad right for their booth came back oh no and said we actually started a company or our company that we were doing the booth for has has actually grown we'd like you to work for us if you want to and you can work satellite from kansas and make better money than I was making at my fabrication job. You can work at home in your underwear. And we want your video experience as well as your motion graphics and animation experience. And they had no relationship to the rec track. Nope. Okay. Right. No, so, uh, actually the CEO of that company knew the main guy behind it. And was like, yeah, that dude is terrible. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. So I worked for them for a couple of years, getting back, you know, video chops and, and increasing my capabilities on, design and graphics i i went up through the ranks to be uh on the marketing team and i was one of the art directors you know good paying job ended up getting offered the the move to new york like do you want to come and move here work in the office because we're growing more we'd like you to be more hands-on um i had traveled to new york a handful of times before that and i really liked it so screw it you know pull up shop move to new york <laughs> you're, you're probably telling your parents you're like yeah, screw it. Let's move to New York. What bad could happen? It's just like, yeah. yeah. Brett, remember yeah. the wreck track? Remember <laughs> wreck track? Yeah. Right? So you and moved it, to New York. Moved to New York. Um, did that job. I mean, there's nothing really fantastic that comes out of that other than realizing that I, I really, I couldn't do the desk job thing anymore. There was a lot of putting just hours and hours into work that, at the end of the day, didn't really make a difference to right. either me or the company as a whole because it started to become, they they pushed out the original CEO and we were one of, you know, we were a startup. We had 12 people. We were really close. Everyone was really friendly. By the time I left, it was 200 people. Full, full executive rewrite, like all new hires, all these people that cared more about the dollars rather than the the core and the heart of this company that we had tried to build. Um, I learned a lot. I made a lot of really cool connections, but nobody gave a shit about who you were. I think internally, like, you know, I made a lot of good friends and, and people really trusted me and I, I was really involved in a lot of aspects of the company, but to the higher ups, I was just another person, right? Another, another number on their timesheet. And, uh, 
I didn't think I wanted to do it anymore. And I'd missed the creativity and the hands-on aspect. I, I was doing everything at this company from like my main job to I helped build some tables for them because we needed tables. And, right. You know, it was, you were handy. And you were also I was so, handy. You were, you, were, you, were, you were a problem solver. Yes. You already established yourself as a problem solver. Yeah. And then I, uh, I started watching the maker community stuff on YouTube. I started getting into YouTube and, you know, I was watching Jimmy specifically and a handful of other people and realized that Jimmy's shop was in the Lower East Side. And I was like, wow, I'm in Union Square. I'm, I'm super close. I could, maybe he'll let me come to the shop someday or wow, what do, wouldn't it be cool to just work for him or like apprentice? Because I was pretty over my job at this point. Right. So I sent him an email to his generic email address that he sends out to everybody or that he shows off all the time. And no bullshit, two days later, I got a reply. Wow. And like one thing led to another and I was, I, I had this conversation with him like the first night that I was there. I was like, do you take apprenticeships or do you have assistants or anything? And he straight up was like, no, I don't want or need any of those things. But if you want to come back by the shop, have at it. Like he was super nice guy. He was very welcoming, but I didn't realize that he got this a lot. Like people find out where his shop is and they would just come in and, and say hi and want to meet him. Yeah. And, um, so I showed up, I worked my day job and then I showed up almost every day for like three or four months to where it started to be like, okay, well you're not just a random guy. Yeah. You, how about you sand this piece of wood for this project I'm working on? Oh, you have some video experience. How about hit the record button on the camera? Just continued building, continued building into a relationship where he started to trust me a little bit. Like I got, I got his credit card to go and pick up some materials one day. And I took some stuff to FedEx to like ship it out. Yeah. All these things. Um, what really solidified it, though, is I was still working my other job, and I was listening to his podcast, Making It, which I had been listening to for a while. And one of the hosts was like, hey, Jim, who's this guy that we've been seeing in some of your videos? And he goes, oh, it's this guy, Brett. He's, he's actually been around for a while now, and he's been helping out a lot. He's, like, cleaning and, and you know, really helping. And, you know, I know Brett listens to this, so uh, thanks, man. I, I really appreciate it. That's I walked into cool. the CEO's office the next morning and quit. Oh my god! Because my 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 main point for it was I have not heard a thank you for the amount of work that I've put into this job, and I've like broken my back and stressed out and lost sleep over all these things that you tell me that are important and they're not. I don't know the last time I heard a thank you, so I'm out. Loyalty doesn't mean you were gonna get tramped trampled over. No. Wow. And Jimmy said thank you, and it was a guy that I had known for and then a couple of months. Tell him I just quit my job. Can I work for you? And then he was just like, "Actually, he picked here? up on it." Yeah, like I showed up kind of earlier than I had been. Uh oh, I think it was like two o'clock in the afternoon. He goes, "What are you doing here so early?" And I was like, oh, "I got off early." And he goes, "Did you quit your job?" Like instantly. <laughs> oh so, my god! It was crazy, and then we we just kind of like cruised on that for a little while, and I was really getting to enjoy just being more hands on. I realized I didn't know near as much as I thought I knew about building and making and, and this world that was opening up to me about metalwork and welding and, and this, that, and the other thing. And then Jimmy got pushed out of his workshop. They raised the rent on him substantially. New York's because scum. 
There's such scum. all the yeah all the tenant housing like the contracts were up so they redid all the numbers and it was ridiculous. And he had the house upstate, so he's like, "Well, I'm moving. I'll, I'll go figure it out up there." And I was like, "Oh man, but I don't really want to stop doing this. Can I come with you?" And he was it was super great for him to put it this way, but he goes, "Don't do it because you think like I'm going to take care of you and this is going to be a job and there's security in it. He goes, I want you to make this your decision. If this is something that you really want to follow, just make the decision for yourself. And I thought it over for a little bit and I, you know, I was kind of getting burnt out on New York City and everything anyways. I just started not to deal with the people so well and the attitudes and, you know, all that all those rose-colored glasses of when I first moved there, and wow, I live in New York City, started to fade. And here, here is the kicker, Jeff. We could even, you know, wrap it up with this one, but this is a story I have not told many people at all. Oh, but I have a photo on my cell phone, uh, which I still feel weird that I even have it. So the day that solidified, like, I'm getting out of this city, I'm going to go follow my passion, because mostly I don't think I like the people here anymore. Like, I'm becoming too aware of the attitudes that New York has. Yeah. It's not charming anymore to me. I come from the Midwest where you say hello to people, and you're not a dickhead on a regular basis. So I was at my stop at the on the Q line, Church Avenue, and... I had my headphones on and my backpack with my camera in it and stuff because I was going to film some stuff at Jimmy's shop. And he had also asked me to help his friend who was getting pushed out of her storage space by yeah. this horrible landlord. And so I'm like, okay, I will go help this. That's horrible. Jimmy was out of town. I will absolutely go help your friend. I'll, I'm on my way. So I'm standing there on the tracks or on the platform and I hear a scream through my headphones. I hear the scream come out. And I look over, and there is a woman laying on the tracks. <gasps> and it did not take a single blink. I threw my headphones and my backpack off, and I jumped down onto the tracks. Because this lady was just lifeless, laying there. And it's just I was like, this is what I have. This, somebody fucking help this lady. So I jumped down and do this thing. And I remember, I have this so burned into my mind, of looking up at the platform... And there were a handful of people with cell phones out. There were a handful of people just ogling. And then one guy who was in a three-piece suit dressed to the nines, like just good-looking, good-looking guy, jumps down on the track in shoes that are probably worth more than everything that's on my person right now. And he helps me lift this lady back onto the platform. And... Like we, you know, I got a hand extended to me to get me back onto the platform and the train still wasn't coming, you know, but that was it. No one, there were a hundred people there and me and this guy in a three piece suit who had no business getting dirty from the tracks and lifting a bleeding lady off of the tracks, put this body back up on the platform and we checked and made sure that she was breathing. Somebody had actually called the paramedics and stuff. So they were on their way and I put my backpack back on the train showed up. It was delayed for a little bit uh, while the paramedics were there and they were just sorting out what the hell happened. The paramedics asked me because I guess somebody pointed me out and they were like, you shouldn't go down on the tracks. Don't ever do that. 
And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, what would have happened in that case? Would the train have stopped? There's a blind curve before that stop. You, they would, there's no way it would have stopped before it hit that lady. So, f- like, fuck you, for lack of a better term, for even saying that. I know it's probably the thing that he needed to say just out of, like, understand the rules. Like, you could have gotten very hurt. Well, shut up. <laughs> that They got her out of there. She was breathing. I don't know her name. I don't know if she made it out on the other side. I hope that went well. And I got on the train. No one knew who I was on the train. Doesn't matter. I went and helped this friend of Jimmy's for two hours while she's getting yelled at by the landlord about how she's taken advantage of his kindness and I'm slugging all of her stuff over to her apartment with her and she's crying. And then I, I rode the train back home to my apartment where I promptly... Like, threw everything off of my body and just stared at the ceiling and took a nap until, like, 6 o'clock at night. I was over it. Like, in in six hours, I had dealt with just people and whatever this attitude is and whatever this, like, normalized culture that's going on. We're like, why wouldn't 20 people go down there and try and help this lady? Wait a second. What train station was it? Q train church in Brooklyn. What part of Brooklyn? Uh, yeah, that's not Borum Hill. That was like, no, well, it's Southwest, uh, Southeast prospect park. It's, it's, it's a bunch of project style apartment buildings and stuff. It ain't necessarily the best people. I wouldn't, yeah, I I wouldn't hold stock. I wouldn't blame all of New York for, yeah, no, absolutely not. And you know what? It's still three and a half years. Right. I, I had so many good experiences. I love certain aspects of New York, and they don't exist anywhere else on the planet. If you but, were on the one and the nine train or the seven train or the L train, everybody would have jumped Dude, the, the L trains. the L would have been. Oh, if, you, if, you, if this woman had fallen down off the L train in like right outside of uh, Williamsburg, Everybody would have a party on the train tracks. They all the hipsters would jump on down there, and then they started to rave down there. Yeah. So I don't oh, know. Damn. I don't know. You know, just situational. Like it's what I dealt with with the that moment that went down, and then watching this landlord like break this girl emotionally because of whatever reasoning. And I found out after the fact it was totally the, just just a crazy landlord that just decided one day they didn't want to have this person's stuff in their place anymore. So something about it just like irked me and I couldn't deal with it anymore. And Jimmy, the option of being part of Jimmy's shop and, and continuing that adventure, if you will, spoke to me. So I bought a truck in Long Island and two days later had it packed and moved out of my apartment. I took what could fit in my truck and drove upstate, and that was it for three years, just working our asses off, learning a lot about blacksmithing, meeting a ton of people because of you know, obviously being connected with Jimmy, like there was just a lot of opportunities to meet yeah. people and have these experiences. And goddamn, like it was the best education I could have ever got if I wanted to get into fabrication and building, but also forging my own path enough to know that. When we had the discussion of me moving out here, it wasn't even a question in my head. I was like, I am ready to, I have to go out on my own now. I have to venture out on my own. 
and you have set me up for this. It has been three years of learning so much stuff on the fly and, and on the job, as it were, to where I actually feel like I'm ready. Like, I will go do this thing, and I'm going to kick it in the teeth. Look at you. So you're now with Jess and, and Ben, and you're in California, you're finishing it all up. What's going on? Well, mostly it's the, I got a property just before COVID hit, which has only created a huge bother with getting paperwork and logistics for that. Um, we're, we're making steady progress on it, but the first thing I did was build a workshop that I could set up in and forge specifically because I'm, I'm just so keen on getting better at my blacksmithing and, and really being able to put that foot forward as this is something that I do mostly full-time. I work with Ben on various projects. Sometimes it's a video for him. Sometimes it's just general, you know, labor and work, whatever needs to get done for for the crew out here. And I'm having a great time, man. There's like, these are all completely new experiences, but I'm loving it. And I have my own place for the first time. I have my own forging space. I've had some super fun experiences out here, you know, like getting Jess back into the forge and having her really get after it and being able to have the anvils going and and the sculptural work that I'm doing for this big, long-running fossil project. All these things are ahead of me, man, and I'm, I'm just super excited for it. Brett McAfee, you're a fascinating guy. Skull and Spades 13 on Instagram. I, I... I did a, I did a little bit of research on you, but, but that story, your, your stories are so incredible. If you want to hear more from Brett, he's also on a podcast with with uh, our friend Steve House and Al's Hack Shack. It's called Fools with Tools. It's a great podcast, and you should definitely check it out. And he's doing all sorts of interesting things. You should go on his Patreon. You should you should subscribe to his YouTube channel. That's Skull and Spades 13. Yeah. And if he's you my want, friend. I, Jeff, you're my friend too. And I tell you, just like I told you at Maker Camp, I am so grateful and, and happy to be involved in this recording. But I told you at Maker Camp too, it was just so cool to be standing in the same space where we were both working and smithing and just going, holy crap, like two years ago, I have I would have never thought I'd interact with you. And Look this at is, you. This is super great. Well, man. this I, is I really great, and it. I'm really thank you for coming on. And uh, you're great. You're yeah, great. I love everything you're me. doing, and you're a very fascinating. Intri- We're gonna have to have you back on because I feel like we only scratched the surface. I, I'm gonna start to get people in on uh, when we after a bit. I'm gonna start to bring doubles in, so maybe I'll have you come in with someone else. Oh yeah, man, that'd be we'll super fun. Um, also, like. Give Jeff a five-star review. You go on All iTunes, right, you do right, the no, five-star review. You give I him a good review, it does I, good things for Jeff. I got to stop doing that. I got I to gotta call somebody. Uh, Chris Cash said, what, what's up with all that? He, 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 he wanted to know what the whole... It's enough already. I'm not going to ask anymore. I'm not going to ask you for the subscribing. I'm not going to ask you for the stars. It's enough already. I've done enough. <laughs> and I think you, people definitely should, though. That's my own It's opinion. enough. I've done enough. I've all asked right, for right. too much. All right. I've asked for too much, and it's enough is enough. So uh, you can. So with that said, go follow me on Instagram, the um, the Full Blast Podcast. You can interact with us. That's where I put all my stuff in. I'm not asking for questions anymore because I love you people very much. But the que- the the questions I've been getting have just been like you. You leave me on my own with some of these questions. I mean, it's it's enough already. 
So thank you once again. Next week we got Alex Pohl coming on. That's God, gonna be that's real gonna exciting. Be so good. And then uh, you know, we got some good guys. I got I'm working on a couple uh big fish, so we're gonna get them squared mm-hmm. away. And with that said, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next Friday. All right. Thank you, Jeff. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.